Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good, cliche, romantic, questionable, hilarious, occasionally humorous films she's never wanted to watch. Chelsea, after last week's episode, you've had some time to consider a very important question. I had to make sure that they didn't play it on the national nightly news because I didn't want them to scoop us because this is a huge reveal. So the question that I asked you once we watched The Wedding Date was, is there a man who you would like to see in a romantic role that you would consider like, wow, because Dermot Mulroney was just not doing it for you? Yeah, I think specifically you were trying to get at Dermot Mulroney was a consolation prize for you in a terrible movie. Mm -hmm. What man? would I find pleasant enough to look at for an hour and a half that at the end I could just say, well, at least this guy was in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be real honest. This was very difficult, (laughs) which will probably not be a surprise to some people. And my first stop on the road to figuring this out is the place that I turn to every single day. And I will take a Dora pause here. For you to guess. Is it the internet? (laughs) I was going for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, fuck. You know what? Take two. Chelsea, is it Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Incredible, Madison. Yes. Oh my gosh. How did you know? How did I guess on the first try? (laughs) Crazy. So, you know, I'm like, David Boreanaz, no. And then I thought about James Marsters. And at first I was like, yes. But then I realized that it's not James Marsters that I want to look at. It's Spike. And as he is a fictional character, that's not an option. Look, James Marsters, not a unattractive man. He's a good looking guy, but not the guy that I'm going to say, well, at least James Marsters was in it. I would specifically say that if Spike, the fictional character, wanted to be himself in a rom-com, I would watch the hell out of that. But as Spike is not a real person, I literally Googled attractive male celebrity. (laughs) Oh my God. I was struggling to come up with ones. And in my brainstorming, I finally figured it out. The man that I would consider a nice consolation prize in a film that was crappy is Michael B. Jordan. He is a good looking man. And I would enjoy watching him chop wood, for example, which is not something I knew that men did. I only thought that one strong Canadian woman was chopping wood. But then when I brought that up at a dinner party, the person was like, who are you talking about? You mean the lumberjack guys that cut wood? And I'm like, no, 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 it's a woman. What do you mean men? Where? When have men ever chopped wood? And that just shows you what side of TikTok <laughs> I'm on. Men are irrelevant. What do men know about wood, Chelsea? Literally nothing. Yes, so... Her name is Nicole Conan, and her Instagram bio reads that lesbian lumberjack from TikTok. I'll put it this way. That woman knows her way around a lot of things. She really sharpens my axe. But, like, the the (laughs) kicker is, as I was trying to come up with people I'd want to watch in a movie, and even if it was crappy, I was, like, the cast of A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime. Every single one of them. I'm talking... Of course, my favorite, Roberto Colindres. Incredible. Oh Darcy Carden. That one. Abby picture, Jacobson. Shante no, Adams. That one picture. Kelly McDonald. The whole fucking cast <laughs> of A League of Their Own. 
<laughs> Madison's trying to form what? a thought. And I'm just naming women. <laughs> <laughs> They're beautiful. I don't understand. I don't know why they haven't renewed that show yet. It's pissing me off. Oh my God, shut the fuck up. The amount of bullshit that gets renewed and they don't renew that, that's an absolute crisis. I know. No one wants more sexist, horrible reality TV show bullshit. No. No one wants that. We want lesbians playing baseball. No, that's it. That's what we want, Mm -hmm. I guess. Oh, and chopping wood. Yeah. Circle back. With swords. With swords. Iconic. We're just really circling back around to my thing for pirates that I didn't know was a thing until it was pointed out to me. Oh, yeah. Because not to take over your job, but I can be quite clueless about... (laughs) That was such a good, seamless transition. A variety of things. Thank you so much. I just wanted to prove that I could do it too. <laughs> well, Chelsea, you know who else is clueless? <laughs> who, Madison? Uh, Alicia Silverstone playing Cher in the 1995 classic Clueless. Now, this was a listener request, and it was a fucking great one, because this cast is really stacked with some now heavy hitters. So you have Alicia Silverstone as the main character, Cher, her best friend, uh, played by Stacey Dash, Dion, and then you have the new girl in town, Brittany Murphy, uh, playing Ty, and the never-aging Paul Rudd as Josh. I know, he looks practically the same. Like, his haircut is different, but I think the rest of him is the same. Yeah, I'd like to say that maybe he just got a little extra hotter as he's gotten older. He's lost a touch of the boyishness, but not quite. This movie features Cher, a high school student who lives in Beverly Hills, trying to weather all of the obvious, uh, well-known, widespread issues of being a teenager, you know, going into your massive closet with your little computer to tell you if your outfit matches or not, and then it circles around like a dry cleaner to bring it to you. Trying to learn how to drive. I know actually a lot of people that are our age, Chelsea, who actually still don't drive, so... That's still quite, uh, it's it's resonant. I think there's a big crossover in the people that can't drive and the people that can't do math, if you know what I mean. I would agree with that, typically, except I know someone who can't drive and can do math. Always breaking the mold, that one. Basically, every time that I see that person and the topic of driving is brought up to make fun of her, I go, you're just a virgin who can't drive. And I realized the other day that I don't think that she's seen Clueless. And so she just thinks that I'm being mean to her. Uh, So Cher's initial external demeanor seems pretty vapid, superficial, but she's actually quite clever, very charming, and has an intellect of her own. I think she really embodies what has become the modern bimbo movement. Less with the sexuality aspect of it, because obviously part of the, you know, you're just a virgin who can't drive. Part of that is that she's never had sex and she's seen as inexperienced by her peers in this regard. But I would say that her mannerisms, her speech, her style has been really well reflected in the modern bimbo movement of women really strongly, or not just women, um women, men, non-binary, gender fluid folks embracing this more traditionally feminized dress, 
beach patterns, that sort of thing that are connected really heavily with like a valley girl movement as well. I think Cher's a great fucking character and that storyline that I just summarized doesn't really involve any romance because, spoiler alert, she falls in love with her brainy stepbrother, which I guess spawned a lot of stepbro porn. But that's it. There's not a lot to this movie. I think this movie is a cult classic because of how it was stylized, how it has that heavy 90s influence that a lot of amazing cult classics have. Obviously, the speech in it. This is not a movie that depends on its plot so much as how it's styled. But that being said, Chelsea, I know that you love a good 90s flair like this. So I would say that this movie may have been a little bit boring, but you could appreciate the style. So I'm going to say that it was all right. I'm not going to say it's your new favorite movie, but it was okay. This is not my new favorite movie, but I do think that it's a fun watch. It's got some great one-liners. It's got some just ridiculous teen fun. I was actually really contemplating some other teen movies because, of course, watching this, you know, I was thinking about Heathers. I was thinking about Mean Girls. I was thinking about 10 Things I Hate About You, which are all kind of in the decades surrounding this film. I mean, 10 Things I Hate About You is also a 90s flick, but I was thinking a lot about the teen movie and its role in cultural consciousness and I was like do we abandon rom-coms and become a teen movie podcast because I think there's a lot there I think there's a lot to be said for a teen movie there's no mistake that these are the kinds of movies that seem to stay with us Heathers has a huge cult following and Heathers is basically the original Mean Girls And all of the John Hughes movies of the 80s are very much quintessential teen movies. I would equate this to 10 Things I Hate About You because this is a loose retelling of Jane Austen's Emma. 10 Things I Hate About You is a loose retelling of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, which is a terrible play, but that movie (laughs) fucking slaps. And I'm sure that a million and a half teen movies are evading me right now. I knew the new movie on Netflix, Do Revenge, is a very much an homage to the teen movie and makes a lot of references to these 90s films, these very famous teen movies that people will recognize. And I just think it's very interesting that these are the films, despite the fact that we all get older, they stick with us. And I'm sure someone else has already talked about this. I'm not trying to say that I'm coming in hot with something no one's ever noticed. I'm absolutely positive people have noticed this before. But I'm excited to talk about this movie. I think that the best part about teen movies is that they have a degree, much like what I would consider rom-coms, like a benefit of rom-coms to be. Teen movies especially can appeal to a wider audience than a traditional rom-com but still hold the basis of still having conflict and consequence, but nothing severe. And so when you're going through an absolute shitstorm of a world, you don't want necessarily passive media that has nothing to it. Obviously, if there's no conflict or consequence, there's not really any plot, which I think this movie does lack if it's going to have a genuine plot. 
but you need a degree of that to be engaged, but you don't want it to be serious enough that it reminds you of all the shit going on. I think that's the value of a teen movie. Why even as adults, you know, it can relate to teens because it meets their level of recognizing that they have conflict in their life. So that's comforting. And then for adults whose conflict tends to be, (laughs) I don't know, more life-threatening, like, fuck, if I don't have a job or a car in America, then I can't eat or have housing. And then, by the way, we have a housing crisis. You don't want to be reminded of that level of severity. I think that it's a nice landing place. I was also thinking that teen movies are one of the few places where young people, specifically young women, are taken seriously. Mm. And even in a movie like this where Cher obviously is a teenager and she's specifically a very privileged young woman. She comes from a very wealthy background. They live in Beverly Hills. That is not a demographic (laughs) that... I think a lot of teen movies uh, have, but even in the moments where you find her ridiculous, she is still the focal point of this movie and she's still a character you're rooting for. She's still a character you like. And I think that unlike the rom-com where you brush up against a lot more misogyny and a lot more internalized misogyny that's coming from within the group Mm -hmm. as well because they're adults I don't know I started thinking about this watching this movie (laughs) so I don't have these thoughts fully formed but I do sort of think that teen movies take young people specifically young women a lot more seriously than in any other space and I do mean that both in media and in reality. That's one of the reasons, here it comes, that I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) Yeah. Because Buffy is a very strong character and she is the hero, but she's also, for a very long time in the series, she's a teenage girl and she wants to do normal teenage girl things. And I don't feel like you're ever upset with her for wanting to go on a date with a cute boy or go to the mall with her friends. Like you want that for her. Yeah, and I don't feel like she's belittled for that in the show. I think the show, to a certain extent, takes that as seriously as all of the saving the world crap that's going on in every episode. Young women, young people of all genders are very smart, and I don't think we take them as seriously enough as we should. And I think we see this, not to go off on a tangent, but there's so many young activists that are the spokesperson for whatever issue it is. Look at what what is uh, Greta Thunberg. How young was she when she <laughs> became like... I think she started when she was 11 or 12. Exactly. Like, that's what I'm saying. Her issue being the environment and climate change, obviously that is an issue that mostly impacts younger people. But really any issue, like this is the world we've inherited and we want to see another change. And and I say we knowing that I'm kind of getting to a point, but I'm I'm still young. I'm I'm not bad. You still look youthful. Thank you. We're both in our mid-20s. But (laughs) so what I'm saying is that's what I think is great about a teen movie. Anywho, I've now sort of lost the plot, but that's what I wanted to say about teen movies. I'm going to continue your plot loss just to say like, yeah, you, I mean- Especially in America, it's not exclusively American, but I would say it's almost uniquely American at this point, you know, school shootings, mass shootings, that sort of thing. 
March for Our Lives is almost exclusively handled, started, grown by teenagers. The idea that there are these kids saying, hey, there are these weapons that harm people on a daily basis. I mean, fuck, last week, when we're recording this, last week, there were three different mass shootings, I believe in California. I know at least two of them were in California. But the idea that we don't take children seriously enough, I think is further highlighted. One thing that I really liked about this movie too is even though the issues were trivial, any issue that came up, you know, shares grades or anything else, she handled that. You know, when she was when she was being like sexually assaulted by I think it was Jeremy Sisto's character and then mugged, she got herself out. Yeah, she called Paul Rudd's character. But, like, she was so calm and cool under that press. And to, like, I know that it was for comedic effect, but to look at the gunman and be like, do you understand that this is a designer dress? Yeah. She negotiated all of her grades to a higher grade through various tactics. And the only time I really feel like she had someone not really come to her rescue, but more so just kind of back her up was that last little bit when Paul Rudd told off that one attorney or paralegal, I'm assuming it was an attorney with the way he was acting, uh, (laughs) um, was like, look, man, she was just trying to help. It's not her fault that you fucked this up because you should have been looking after your own files and she I mean it also harkens back to before when she was helping her father she was looking for that specific date she was continuing on a task that she was assigned she was doing exactly what she was told and he was like look man he's like well you just want to get in her skirt or whatever fuck that dude but all throughout the movie even though they were generally trivial issues the sexual assault element was not trivial uh and we'll get to that I want to talk a little bit more about that kind of thing with the director but she handled all of her own shit and I like that a lot because I feel like in rom-coms some teen movies but especially rom-coms there's this element of someone else has to step in to defend or protect and you didn't see that here until the very end and that was really only to bring the quote-unquote love interest together but uh, talking about the director so the director is amy heckerling and she also wrote the movie didn't she she did she did and she's um also an environmentalist she helps out with a lot of environmental charities so circling right back to that concept but she made fast times at ridgemont high and that's sort of how she got into Hollywood being taken more seriously because Fast Times is another one of those just like classic grabs you cult kind of movies. But Fast Times also deals with a lot heavier topics. I think the 80s were a big time for teen movies to start dealing with heavier topics, but we also see this really weird running theme of sexual harassment sexual assault because in fast times there's a scene where one of the characters sees another character or like is fantasizing about this other character while pleasuring themselves in the bathroom after seeing this one like teenage character in a bikini 
And watching it now, I mean, it's just, it was icky beforehand. It was played off as comedy. It's still icky now. But you also see, like, in 16 Candles, and it's like, I can't believe I just gave my panties to a nerd to insinuate that they had done some sexual act together. You see that come up a lot in movies around this time. And the director doesn't really seem to be a stranger to those kinds of scenes, but I feel like she actually handled it fairly well in Clueless as opposed to Fast Times. Although she didn't write Fast Times either. Uh, Cameron Crowe wrote Fast Times. She just directed it. On that same thread, there is a part at the beginning of the film where Cher is talking through narration about Dion and Murray, I believe, is her, mm-hmm. is her boyfriend. And there's two things I want to say about this. She does say, I think they've seen that Ike and Tina Turner movie just too many times. And the insinuation is that they're just so dramatic. But Ike and Tina Turner's relationship was abusive. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know when Tina wrote her memoir. And I don't know if that was the first time she had openly discussed the intricacies of that relationship. Mm-hmm. and the abuse that she suffered. But I feel like if it was a movie that probably, you know, but anyway, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Like I didn't, I didn't love that line um, because I think it was vi- like trivializing a very real problem. Yeah. Especially because it is one of the only two black characters, like speaking black characters in the film mm-hmm. and the violence that women of color face at a much higher rate. I didn't like it. But the other thing that happens, Cher says in the narration that, you know, she doesn't mess around with high school boys. She says, I don't know why Dion is going out with a high school boy. And this sentiment I've heard echoed in a lot of teen movies. Yeah. And I just started thinking that this mindset is not super healthy. If you're in high school, you should, if you're dating, you should be dating your peers, right? Yeah. And- I don't care if a person is a freshman in college. That person is no longer your peer. Unless, of course, when you met each other, you were in high school. So there's some room for discussion on that. But if you meet this person and this person is a freshman in college, that person's not your peer. I think it's very jarring for people because these transitions happen very quickly. But you do so much maturing between the time you enter high school and leave high school, the time you enter college and leave college, and even in that transition from high school to college, there's so much that happens. And that's why, and I know we've talked about power dynamics before, but this sentiment that, oh, high school boys, and 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 I hear this a lot of times too when people talk about like girls mature faster than boys. And our brains are not fully developed until we're in our early 20s. But I think that a lot of times when we talk about boys maturing, it's very much a boys will be boys sort of attitude to just excuse really shitty behavior and put all of the onus on women. And I know I'm being very, I'm sticking within the cisgender binary, but I think that this comment is either A, some kind of puritanical propaganda to keep teens chased by like avoiding the topic of like, yeah, don't be interested. Yeah, just don't don't be interested in the boys. Wait till you're in college. That's what on one hand it feels like. But on the other hand, it feels almost as if it's some grooming power move mm-hmm. to say you should be interested in men that are older. You should be interested in men that are older. You shouldn't be interested in your peers. Your peers aren't mature enough for you. 
I mean, this is literally what pedophiles and groomers say to young kids is that, oh, you're so mature for your age. Oh, you look so much older than 14. No, you fucking don't. They're lying to you. They're trying to make you feel special. So anyway, I didn't like this. I think it's fucked up either way you take it. Either it's society trying to control your body or it's people trying to make you vulnerable. And so I just don't like it either way. Like I said, I had a fun time watching this movie, but there are some things. I don't even want to say that it's the problem of this movie itself. I think these things exist in other pieces of media. So I'm not trying to throw this movie under the bus and say that this is the only one that has the problem. It's just I noticed this while watching. So I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. Speaking from experience, it is perfectly fine to be interested in people who are older than you. But make sure that you don't do it until your prefrontal cortex is almost completely, if not completely formed. That's just my PSA. I don't need to explain it to you because I've lived it. Um, So just trust me. I would completely agree. It's well, you see that in Heather's too. Going back to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, there's an arc where a younger sister of a character was seeing a man who is older than her. She's a high schooler and he's, I think he's in college, if not out of college at that point. I know he's in his early to mid 20s and they have sex in a baseball dugout, which is really gross. But she ends up getting pregnant and he basically just is like, oh, that sounds like you problem. And she's a child. And so her brother, who's been a bit of an ass the whole movie, he's the one who jerks off in the bathroom. He ends up taking her to the abortion clinic and driving her there and back to be, you know, a solid fucking brother. But yeah, you see that in Heather's when they're going to the party and Heather gets paid in puke, according to her. So it is a weird phenomenon. And you also don't see that peddled to men very often. Obviously, you have your Mrs. Robinson, MILF, like uh, American Pie, Stifler's mom sort of vibes. But that's almost always comedy. I would say The Graduate's definitely not comedy in that aspect. But overall, if a man does do that, again, it's still fucking grooming. It's still weird. It's just in the reverse. But if you see that, then it's like, oh, this young style, you know what? To quote uh, Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, uh, he apparently lost his virginity to an older woman. It was like, I lost my virginity to an older woman. She liked horses and treated me like a young stallion. A quick ride and then slap my rump to let me go off to graze. I had to know that. So now you do. This was actually just me being mean and having to share this. I don't like this. I don't like it at all. No, but you also, you don't see that a lot in teen movies regardless because if it is portrayed that way, it's seen as like this cool hip thing all the same, just in a different way different lens usually it's more comedic but that's definitely I mean that the fuck that's definitely something to be bothered and I feel like this movie actually has a lot of opportunity to sort of pick apart the more general themes that it carries because it has no plot I mean it does that's being a bit reductive because the plot is that she decides that she wants to better the world around her so she starts volunteering and she 
hooks up two of the teachers and they fall in love and get married and she tries to improve the lives of others. That's how it starts out is that she takes on Brittany Murphy's character as a pet project, transforms her in the classic end of Breakfast Club, Ali Sheedy makeover type thing. I'm just name dropping a lot of movies and I feel bad to anyone who hasn't fucking seen any of them. We're just giving them a nice uh, homework assignment. Go watch <laughs> some of these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Now they have to. Okay. Notice I said some of them because I don't think you should watch all of them. No, no. So far I've, let's see, we've gone through Fast Times, The Graduate, American Pie, uh, the Breakfast Club. So they've got a full Saturday stacked with what they can watch now. Also, if you like Brittany Murphy, watch Uptown Girl. It'll break your heart. Uptown Girls. That's what it is. I love it. I love it. You want to watch that? <laughs> that's, it's not a rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> not a rom-com. But I love the relationship between her and uh, Dakota Fanning. It's it's a, I, it's a fun movie. I, I think it's sweet. I like it. Also, you get to... Now, it's actually a really touching moment that it happens. I'm making light of it. But you get to see... uh, (laughs) You get to see Brittany Murphy slap a young Dakota Fanning. And if you take it completely out of context, it's kind of funny. But since this movie doesn't have a lot going for I think that it also really underplays the classic makeover element that you see in teen movies, which surprised me the first time watching it and surprised me again the second time watching it. I don't know. I guess they had, you know, remade all of it in the since the last time that I watched it, obviously. Well, Paul Rudd doesn't age, so they could do that. <laughs> but they didn't have the mall sequence to the extreme of, oh my gosh, we have to get you all new clothes and pluck and primp and everything like that. They kind of just unuglied her. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I feel like... A lot of teen movies, you see these makeover scenes, you see scenes at the mall. They spend far more time in cars than anywhere else. And none of them should be driving those cars. Oh my God, no one. But I will say the part where Dion is driving and Murray (laughs) is sort of instructing her and she accidentally gets on the freeway and all of them are screaming bloody murder. I was cackling through that whole scene because the thing is, that scene really captures when you're first learning how to drive and you have to go at high speeds. You've been in a car how many times in your life? But until you are behind the wheel, you do not understand how fucking insane and crazy it is that we drive these cars every day. And the fact that anyone can be afraid of flying or think flying is worse than driving. And I like to drive, to be clear. But when I was learning how to drive, I was so excited. I got my permit and my dad, we didn't have a lot of time, but my dad took me to a parking lot for like 15 minutes so that I could get behind the wheel and drive for the first time. I'm about to turn on the car and he grabs my hand and he goes, this is a two ton vehicle and you could kill someone and then let my hand go. And I stopped in my tracks because the reality of that, like you are so focused as a young person on this cool new step into adulthood. That is very exciting. Driving is freedom. But the reality is that you have a lot of response. Like it's also a time where you're reflecting on with, this freedom comes the responsibility. So like, I remember that so vividly and I will remember that for the rest of my life. But yes, in the scene where they're in the car driving on the freeway, I was laughing so hard. But like, that's a real fear. Like it's, you know, dialed up because it's a movie, but that I feel like if you've never driven, if you live in a city or somewhere and you've never driven, it could be terrifying to drive that quickly. That is 
it's just wild. I, I really enjoyed that part. It ended up launching like a whole series of conversations with my family. I have two sisters, and so we each have our own individual, like, first time driving, first time doing this, or, like, early on driving fuck-up stories that are just so amazing. I think mine personally takes the cake, but we'll get there. But specifically talking about driving on the freeway for the first time, I remember getting on I-85 for the first time. It was the first time I had ever driven on a highway. And my mom was like, you have to go fast to be able to merge. You cannot be slick because like those cars, you have to match their speed. And so I'm like, all right, fuck, I will go fast. And I remember merging seamlessly and I just keep going. And she's like, Jesus Christ, slow the fuck down. Because I was like, I was over 80 miles an hour at that point. The speed limit's 70. And I'm like, oh, God. But the first time that Serena drove was with me. And so it was Thanksgiving and I was like, all right, motherfucker, we're going to pull into this. I think it was like a save a lot or something like that in Stevens County. I was like, all right, bud, we're going to drive in this parking lot and we can cry together if you want. Because she was starting to tear up. I was like, look, we'll cry together as we do this. It'll be bonding. And she starts doing really well. Like, we're just doing, like, slow back and forth. We're practicing slowly pulling into parking spaces. I'm like, okay, well, why don't you, like, go down this lane of this completely empty parking lot? Have you ever seen the Bob's Burgers driving episode where Bob is trying to teach Tina how to drive? It's basically that for anyone who has seen that because what happens in that episode is Tina drives the car into like the only lamppost in the entire place and Serena very, very nearly drove my car into an empty uh, cart corral. Like the whole place is empty and she and I just very calmly reached over and turned the wheel very quickly while she continued to roll forward so we missed it. And then Kate ended up, the first time that she was driving on an actual road, she came to a full stop as a car approached her, like, on the in the other lane. Full stop in the, middle, in the middle of her lane. Like, nope, I'm not moving. This car must pass me before I continue forward. But none of them uh, drove into a ditch, which I did. But look, guys, here is a good PSA for you. If you're going to drive into a ditch... Like, if you plan to, if you expect to, if you feel like it's inevitable, do it in the country in front of a farm because you will have not one, not two, but three, three farm men come in to see that you crashed in a ditch in front of their farm and will look at your car and go, oh, it's fine. We can get it. We might have to get some two by fours, create a ramp, but we can drive this out of there for it. And then they just drive your car out of the ditch and send you on your way. Perfect. The car wasn't damaged. I want that noted. The car was fine. My grandmother, a little shaken up. It's the first time that I ever heard her say a genuine curse word. Like, I don't consider damn or hell to be a genuine curse word because those are kind of biblical. Uh, but that was the first time that I heard her truly curse when she went, shit. <laughs> I love that if it's in the Bible, it's not a curse. No, if it's in the Bible, it's not a curse. <laughs> what a, I, there are so many people that would disagree with you, but I find that rule that tickles me. Since we're sharing driving stories, the part where Cher is taking her driving test and of course she fails because she like literally hit a car. 
In the course of her driver's test, she's in the middle of two lanes. The guy is like, of course you didn't pass. But then she's like, you saw that biker came out of nowhere, right? The biker did not. The biker was in his lane doing his thing and she almost killed a man. But that made me think I had a rental car because there was a recall and a part on my car. Oh, that reminds me of my airbags are recalled. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I need to get that Funnily enough, out. that's what was recalled on that car when... <laughs> The AirPods were recalled. So I was in a rental car and I had gone to Kroger to pick something up for dinner that night that my mom was like, hey, on your way home from work, can you grab this? Like, great, great. I will go do that. So I do go do that. And in the process, I get into a fender bender because I am going straight. And this very young, I mean, I think this girl just got her driver's license, (laughs) was making a left turn and makes a left turn into me. I'm basically at the front of the grocery store and she's coming out of one of the parking lanes and she has a stop sign. I do not have a stop sign. And she just kept turning and I'm watching this happen, but I can't do anything because there was people crossing the road, I, like on a crosswalk. So she turns into me and then we have to wait. She's like, can we not do insurance? But it's a rental car. So I don't even have that option. I mean, I don't really want to play around with people saying they're going to fix my car, but I had a rental car, so I'm like, I have to call the insurance. Like, we have to report this. She didn't get a ticket because it was on private property. But we did have to call the cops. It took forever for the sheriff guy to show up. And then she's telling him that there was something in her way. And so she couldn't see. I was like, wait, was it was it my car blocking your view of the of the open road? (laughs) Because whatever she said, it did not make any sense. And I was like, how, that's not a thing. Oh, but my God. Anyway, so when I watched that scene, that's all I could think of was the 16-year-old girl going, you saw, because she's trying to get me to agree with her. She's like, you saw that car that was, I'm like, wait, you mean my car blocking your view of the open road? Because that's the only thing that could be blocking. Yeah. <laughs> could be blocking anyway. But you were making a left turn. There was nothing. Because if you if you were making a left turn, then you would have hit a different car if there was a car going by, not me. Anyway, it was hilarious. So that made me laugh really hard. In regard to the stop sign that was there, she totally paused. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it's late into the game. Maybe I should have introduced this at the top. But we did have a question about drinking games. And I was in, in reference to our episodes. And... We could establish one for the podcast itself, but I think I might start doing many ones for each movie that we watch. And this one, every time you see the closet computer, drink. Every time you hear an overhead share narration, drink. Because I think that there aren't enough overhead narrations in movies now, but I digress. Every time she goes, ugh, as if. And then every time you hear, I was like totally bugging or some version of I was totally bugging. Every time that you think of a Princess Bride line, when he pops up on screen, and every time uh, someone cry sings or happily sings, uh, rolling with the homies. So that should put you in a coma if you want to play along with that. Great. Great job. Thank you. I'm like totally bugging. I don't think you used that correctly. Oh. I think that means like wigging out. Yeah. Or freaking out. I love that. I love it so much. I also love, here's a fun fact for you that I found. 
Alicia Silverstone actually did not know how to correctly pronounce Haitians when she was doing her debate about Haitian refugees. And and remember that the Statue of Liberty, it does not say RSVP. So if Congress just, could just get in the kitchen and rearrange a few plates, uh, she actually legitimately pronounced it Haitians intentionally because she did not know. And uh, the director loved it so much that she told the crew not to correct her because she thought it was so fucking funny and wanted it to be in the film. Wow. Yeah. I hope someone corrected her later on. I know. After that scene was done filming. Because I really hope that Alicia Silverstone didn't go on for another three years saying Hadians yeah. when it's Haitians. <laughs> exactly. You know, that was one of the lines that I wrote down. May I remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. This is iconic. It's superb. L Woods for president, but Cher for the Veep. That's all I'm saying. <gasps> oh my God, that's so hot. I love that. I Well, you sent me the thing the other day that was like, what if we get Princess Diaries 3 and Anne Hathaway as the Queen of Genovia gets to meet the president, the new president of the United States, and it's L Woods. Imagine Cher as Veep. And their platform is focused on animal rights, environmentalism, basically just the Green New Deal. I think Beyonce said it best. Who runs the world? Girls. Girls. In. Oh, I'm really, I'm really taking your job this episode. I, I, I think know. that was the first musical reference and it was made by me, not you. I Look at us. I, I got too heavy in the other, other movie references. I couldn't, I couldn't do both, I guess. I also really liked Travis's speech that he gives. Travis gives this acceptance speech in response to having the most tardies <laughs> yes. in the one teacher's class. And he's like, I'd like to thank my parents for never giving me a ride to school. <laughs> and the LA public transit system, you know, shout out to those guys and the people at McDonald's <laughs> for making those little egg McMuffin sandwiches without which I would not have had so many tardies. <laughs> I know. I think that's one thing that I really do love in teen movies around this time. And again, just a fucking jump back to Fast Times because it's the same director. You get similar sort of speeches from uh, Spicoli's character in Fast Times. And it's that same sort of stoner vibe. It's just it's fucking amazing. But Chelsea, I do want you to consider what this movie could have been. Since we were talking about Elle Woods and Cher as a presidential option, other actors who auditioned for this film do include Reese Witherspoon for Cher, Terrence Howard for Murray, Jeremy Renner for both Christian and Josh, Zoe Deschanel for Amber and Cher, Owen Wilson for Travis, and Seth Green for Travis. Wow. I know. Wow. Pre-Buffy Seth Green. I can't imagine it. Wow. Mm -mm. I refuse to imagine it, actually. If Seth Green was Travis, do you think that Ty would have been a lesbian? Because as we know, <laughs> Seth Green turns women into lesbians. <laughs> Case in point. Willow Rosenberg and also Velma from Scooby-Doo. We, we know this. We know this to be true. 
my god, it would have been even more inclusive. I love that. Story. Well, also, I didn't quite understand the line that Ty says when she's like, I've never had straight friends before. But then I realized she meant straight is in not doing drugs. I know. I had to come to the same realization as well. I'm like, I guess she could kind of be a queer icon type. Well, that's what I thought it was at first. I was like, oh, okay, so she's she's queer. And I mean, the way that she's dressed, not to stereotype, but I was like, okay, yeah, that's an outfit that a sapphic person would wear in the 90s. But then I realized, oh, no, because then it went on and on, but she was genuinely interested in these men and there was never any mention of her possible queerness later. So I was like, oh, never mind. Never mind. She meant drugs. She meant drugs. It's drugs. She meant like straight edge, not heterosexual. (laughs) Just in case anyone else was confused by that line. Now you know. Well, if I'm thinking about it, though, I know that... I've talked about the problematic elements. We've talked about the problematic elements. We've talked about the sort of aimlessness of the movie, like not having a truly sincere plot. But I'm going to lie to you, Chelsea. There's really not much at all that I would change about this movie. It just is. And I like that. I think that there's a divide when it comes to media and other content. That you as the consumer can either consume it with the purpose of engaging with it critically, or you can either consume it for entertainment. But that's not true. You can do both of those things at the same time. And I think that this movie is, I think it's fun to watch. I think there are some things that, for whatever reason, are in here that I don't love. But I, again, don't necessarily fault this movie all by itself, I think it's a product of a lot of other things and we would have to sit here and examine multiple teen movies and we don't have the time to do that. But that being said, yeah, I agree with you. I don't know that there's a ton I would change about this movie. Even the things that I feel like I was a little skeptical about Christian being the only queer representation that you have in this movie and the fact that it's a comedy in 1995. He's not super effeminate. They didn't play that up Yeah, he does participate in a lot of traditionally feminine activities, but it felt more genuine than I think some other films would have. They would have really turned up the dial on his feminine traits and really made a joke out of it. And instead, it feels to me more that the joke is that Cher and Dion just aren't getting that he's gay. Mm -hmm. As opposed to making fun of the character for being gay. Right. And I think a lot of his mannerisms and his speech to me were more reflective of the stylization of this film Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to queer code him yeah does that make sense i i don't feel like they were trying to be disrespectful or rather trying to poke fun at this character i don't think he was the caricature of He wasn't a GBF. Yeah. Despite the fact that they remain friends after she discovers that he is gay. But also the fact that he didn't have to come out to her, which is very strange. Yeah. Especially for this era. I mean, the fact that she realized and then they just went to being friends and had a good time together and that was it. It didn't need to be discussed further. So I'm not trying to praise this movie as like the best example, (laughs) but I was pleasantly surprised that this was not an issue. Yeah. 
There's not a whole lot that we really want to change. There's not a whole lot that I would like to change about this movie. However, this movie does feature something that I would like to bring back oh. into films and TV. And that is the inclusion of real bands and musical groups within party sequences. Mm-hmm. Here's the time for Chelsea to name drop. <laughs> They used to do this all the time. 10 Things I Hate About You features both Letters to Cleo and Save Ferris. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Charmed both have nightclubs. So in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's the bronze. And then in Charmed, there's P3. And both of those constantly feature various musical artists and episodes. And in those episodes where there are scenes at the club, there will be... A real band. Off the top of my head, I know Michelle Branch was on both of those TV shows mm-hmm. at some point. And I can't think of another band at the moment, but that's fine. Another movie that we watched for this show, Never Been Kissed, which is a trash movie, <laughs> but they did have a real band at the club that they go to. Yeah. And in this movie, they have the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, which is a ska punk band. And I didn't know this going into this, to be clear. <laughs> I was like, this has to be a real band. The way that it was filmed. At the party, I went, this is a real band. This is the start of my campaign to bring back bands being themselves in party sequences, clubs, things like that. I think there should be more of that in TV. I concur. I absolutely agree because it's also such a good opportunity to bring... Well, I'll say this. um, Betty Who was featured on the TV show The Bold Type and... I think it's a great way to say, hey, you like this kind of media visually, film wise, you might also like this music. You end up finding a really good fucking band or a good artist. Yeah. Well, I feel like more often than not nowadays when this happens, the musical artist is not featured as themselves being a musical artist. If they're either featured as themselves as a cameo as themselves. Yeah. So they're not playing music or they might be in the show. We talked about uh, last season, Taylor Swift being on that episode of New Girl. But first of all, she wasn't Taylor Swift. She was playing a character. To your point, that's a great opportunity to introduce people. I think like the Cranberries, I think, were in, you know, and I mean, the Cranberries were kind of big. So that was probably later on in Charmed that they were on. My, anyway, my point is when you go back and you're like, oh, let's look up that band that's playing on the background. I really like it and I think they should do more of it. I don't know why we stopped, but that had a very particular moment in film and TV and they don't do it as much anymore. Hardly ever. I think that's a shame. I agree. We're going to bring it back. So there's not much that we want to change about this movie. Potentially new movies. <laughs> we want to bring elements in. But Chelsea, was this even a rom-com? That's a really great question, Madison. And one we ask every episode because as our show is about rom-coms, we need to be able to identify them. And we have three pieces of criteria to help us determine whether or not something is a rom-com. So number one, do they date? They being the romantic coupling or couplings in a movie that might have more than one romantic interest couples. And that just means, are there moments in which we see these characters growing closer together emotionally throughout the course of the film? The second piece of criteria is, did we laugh? Because this is a romantic comedy. Romance might be at the forefront of that genre, but it should still be comedic. So Whether or not we personally laughed, although we have already established that we did, we need to at least see that an effort was made to make this comedic. 
And then the last but not least, probably the most important question that we ask is, is love in the driver's seat? Meaning, is the plot or story propelled forward by the romance? So do they date Madison? And define they. If we're going with the pairing that I assume we would, which is Josh and Cher, they have moments where you can see that their relationship isn't actually as contentious as you're led to believe at the very beginning because you have the nights when they're just hanging out, eating food, you know, vegging in front of the couch, watching TV. You see him go and pick her up after she's been stranded by a sexual assailant and then mugged by an armed robber. And he, from what I can tell, he leaves a date. Like he's hanging out with someone who might be of romantic interest to him. And he stands up for her. They have playful moments. I don't know if I would consider it necessarily dating in a traditional sense at all, but it's definitely deepening of the relationship to the degree of romance. No, it's more so like you can see a budding kinship or at least like a defrosting of the ice sort of situation. So I'm tempted to give this like a half point, but not Yeah, I agree. I think you definitely see these characters growing closer, but I feel like it's not in the context of a romantic pursuit or relationship. And perhaps that does speak to the title of the movie. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I have not read Emma by Jane Austen. However, I was reading a couple articles comparing the two. And Emma, who is Cher, is sort of a matchmaker and is trying to solve other people's problems, which is what you see in Cher, but doesn't really think about herself, which is why it isn't until Ty asks about setting her up with Josh that Cher starts to realize even, and at that point, it's not even consciously, just emotionally registering that this is something she does not want to happen. And that's so far at the end of the movie. That's, of course, where we get the iconic line, you're a virgin who can't drive. Obsessed. Which is just, it's just so funny. Especially because, like, it's supposed to be so gutting. I know. It's like that, uh, it's like the moment in The Good Place where Michael says, you basic. That's devastating. You're devastated. That's how this felt. (laughs) Exactly. But I agree that it's not in a romantic context. So... I I guess a half a point, the characters are growing closer together, but it's just not in a romantic context. And not only that, I guess uh, speaking to your point, is maybe it's exactly that. Maybe we're not supposed to feel like it's a romantic context until she dies. So we are equally clueless. I don't, maybe it's just a great setup. Maybe all of this was romantic and we positioned ourselves as humans often do in the protagonist. We are the main character. Maybe this movie is just iconic for even greater reasons. Look to yourself and think, am I Cher? As if. (laughs) I was about to say, actually, if you get me drunk enough, you know how certain people, like if they get like drunk, you can tell because they always do this one thing. My one thing is I'll look at you and go, have I ever done my Cher impression for you? And then I'll just really horribly do like an awful share impression where I just attempt to sing, do you believe, like, um, believe, you know, do you believe in life after love? 
Oh, wait, like that share. That share, not this share. The other <laughs> share. The real share. The, the iconic share. share. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> who in any other context, I would have assumed that's who you're yeah. speaking of. <laughs> speaking of this rom-com, I was a little thrown. Um, You know that I'm really drunk when I go, let's go dancing. Let's dance. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Chelsea... We've never had the opportunity to be drunk together, and I need to fix this. At my one of my best friend's weddings, I was the DJ's best friend because one of the first songs that they played was Everybody Dance Now. And I need you to know that I had barely eaten that day <laughs> and then downed like two glasses of champagne, and I was feeling it. And I was trying to get everyone on the dance floor. I was like, it's literally in the lyrics everybody dance now and that's what i wanted that's what i was trying to communicate to the people and people were entertained i did manage to get some people on the dance floor not as many as i would have liked i was a little aggressive maybe people were scared i don't know (laughs) not like bad like i'm a happy drunk but like i was (laughs) trying to get people to dance and they were like i don't know who you are and i'm like how do you not know who i am i just gave a speech i did my homework now it's time to party (laughs) That's incredible. I love that so much. Well, Chelsea, uh, did we laugh? Obviously, we've confirmed that. Yeah, we laughed. Of course we laughed. This movie is funny. It's got great one-liners. Lots of memorable moments. Really Really good physical comedy in this movie, too. I find that's what gets me, is if it's not, like, horrible slapstick, but it's still really good physical comedy, I find that is my, like, sweet point. So her bashing into cars, Brittany Murphy totally getting pegged in the head at one point, uh, her being, (laughs) her laying on the ground counting like the guy told her to in her designer dress. Amazing. Great. It's perfect. So it gets a full point for that. Oh, yeah. And last but not least is love in the driver's seat. If love is in the driver's seat, I hope it's a better driver than Cher. I think it's probably more of like a Dion if it's there. It's it's difficult because as you said, this movie has a very limited plot. It kind of meanders. In a lot of ways, this movie almost felt like vignettes about Cher rather than a cohesive plot. Because to say in the end it's about her and Josh getting together does a real disservice to a lot of the other things that are happening. I was a little confused because instead of just introducing Christian as a new student, they mention him early in the movie when the debate teacher is taking attendance. Cher takes the time to say that his parents are divorced and he's sending one semester here and one semester there. So it's a little weird that they put that in the film. I feel like it would have been easier to just make him to a new student. But you kind of move through this in terms of pairings of people. The first part is her getting together the teachers so she can change her grade. Then you move on to her new pet project, Ty, getting her away from Travis, who is the slacker who Cher views as not good for her, even though he's... So sweet. Oh my God. I mean, I it like him. broke my heart when they were mean to this kid. I was like, he's so nice. Look, stoners are some of the nicest people I've ever met. They are so genuinely kind. So we move on to Ty, Travis, and Elton. We have that whole situation. And then we move on after that to Christian and Cher. 
And then we move on to the last portion of it, which is Cher and Josh. So these feel like separate things. They all go together. The through line is Cher. This is very much a story about Cher, but this doesn't feel like it has a plot because each of these things have their own exposition. They each have their own start and finish, their own goals and motivations within those stories that are sort of insulated from one another. And yet they don't feel totally disconnected because you're A, in the same movie, but also you're with the same characters. It's almost five separate stories kind of put together. Yeah, the overarch here is Cher becoming a quote unquote better person. I don't think she was ever a bad person. Here's the thing. The ditziest people that I know are also the most surprisingly esoteric and just so kind. And really heartfelt in their analysis of the world and the people and the situations they're in. But I think if I had to choose something that's driving this, it's just Cher coming into her own rather than anything else. And these are people who help aid her along that way. Exactly. It's not a romantic comedy. No. Because love, romantic love, is not what's propelling the story forward. Because if you take a look back, as you said, the arc that's there is share coming of age, yeah. becoming a slightly less self-absorbed person. I don't really feel like she was ever totally self-absorbed. I mean, yes, she's a little self-absorbed, but aren't most young people to a certain extent? I was about to say that should... Your world at that age is so small that I think it's very difficult. I think that there are obviously people that are very empathetic and very mindful of others, but you're probably the most selfish in your early years. And I think as time goes on, you will become more aware of other people that exist in the world. I think that should honestly be the luxury of younger people. And I think that's something that's been largely stripped away. And that's why we see really, really young activists like Greta Thunberg and David Hogg. One, they've been put in situations where it's so difficult to actually ignore what's going on. Two, you have social media linking people to more people at a much younger age, everything feels less vast when you can kind of touch different corners of the world much easier. And so that puts you in touch a lot faster. Yeah, I actually think that's a really sad thing that's going on now. I fuck. I mean, obviously, I love young activism. I think that the more aware and involved you are at a younger age, potentially the more change that you can make happen but one that requires people to actually take you seriously, which as we said before, people don't take younger people seriously. They're convinced that they don't have any insight into the world at all just by a lack of time physically spent here. But I also kind of miss that idea that you could have a coming of age story where they're 16, 17, 18 and are just now realizing that shit's happening in the world. You don't see that as much anymore in a genuine way because it's just not genuine anymore. I think that's sad. I bummed myself out. <laughs> Fuck. But I like that about this movie. I like that the point is not anything other than share just becoming. Yeah. Look, I think that's what I was saying at the start of this episode. I like the teen movie for the fact that it takes young women seriously. 
and we see Cher grow, but I also feel like she doesn't have to grow in a profound way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Her growth feels very organic for the story and the world that she is existing in. But by the same token, she doesn't have to grow in a profound way for us to root for her and like her. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the preciousness of youth. As you were saying, it's really sad that kids aren't allowed to be as selfish as they once were. And I think we use the word selfish very negatively, but I think that you have to be selfish when you enter this world. You cannot do anything for yourself. And so all you do is want things and other people have to give them to you. But as you grow, you become less selfish because you don't need to be selfish anymore. And I don't really even know if that's actually selfish because if I'm talking about existing. But in some ways, I'm wondering, maybe is that why we love teen movies? I think so. Is that why we love them? Because it allows us for a short period of time to remember a simpler era in our life. Obviously, not everybody's life Certainly not everybody's life is as shares is Beverly Hills, daughter of a litigator that makes $500 an hour, which just in case you thought I forgot my side hobby of inflation calculators, that is nearly one grand. It's like $960 an hour. I'm so glad that you brought that up because as someone who works in civil law, I can tell you that if you are looking at billable hours from my experience from like associate attorneys, so those are like junior attorneys, so to speak, from the underling attorneys, you're looking around $325 an hour and the senior attorneys, you're looking around $550 an hour, at least in the civil field that I'm in. So the fact that he's charging that much then, I was like, oh, fuck, he's a big city roller. Well, I mean, he's Beverly Hills litigator. California itself is the coasts are typically more expensive for whatever reason. Also, everything's expensive everywhere. Is that why I want to live on the coast, Chelsea? Is it because I actually just want to live a life of luxury? Maybe. I'm a luxury-driven lady. You have said before that you're a luxurious, bougie individual, so... I am. I am. I aspire to simple, plain luxury. That may sound like an oxymoron, but I promise you it's not. (laughs) So, I mean, it sounds like we liked this movie. So, watchability. What are we going to give this? For anyone who's tuning in just now, our watchability score is loosely based off of Zillow's walkability score, which evaluates properties in their proximity to things around you, how walkable a city or a location is. Ours is on a scale of one to five for how watchable a movie is. One, you are stranded in the desert. Two, you're at a backroads barbecue. Three, you're at a strip mall in suburbia. Takes you about 30 minutes to get there, but once you get there, you have some coupons in your pocket. It's fine. Four is four blocks from a transit stop, and five, the best coffee in the city is right downstairs. I actually want to evaluate this movie in two different ways, Chelsea, on my account. Uh, I want to rate the watchability and rewatchability score, but I'm going to let you go first on your watchability score. Watchability, I think this is a solid four. I would watch this again, and I think it's a fun watch. I don't know how you could watch this and be annoyed. Yeah, sure, there are certain things, but I think overall, it's a very watchable movie. I agree. I think for anyone seeing it for the first time, I would solidly agree with a four. 
I think it's a very approachable movie. It's a good, it's just a good fucking teen movie. If you're looking for something in that genre, this is, it has to, it's probably top three. It has to conquer your list for teen movies. Rewatchability, um, if you're, you know, planning on watching this more than once, I'd probably knock it down to a three. And only because I understand that a lot, especially a lot of Western media focuses more so on plot driven stories rather than character driven stories. And I would say that this is technically a character driven story, but the character evolution is a lot simpler. And so the undercreated plot in conjunction with a more simple character growth, I would probably knock it down to a three for future views because you don't get the first movie glow, first watch glow. Either way, it holds up really well. Well, and I also think that this really speaks to the time in which it was created in terms of that character growth being very simplistic. I think we're a lot more cognizant now of external factors that go into the high school experience. Think about the transformative tragedy that was Columbine. That happened four years after this movie. So I really think that that may have reshaped some of the things we discuss when we discuss adolescence and education. And I don't mean to drop that and sort of run away from it, but I do think that's important cultural context to have when watching this movie and being like, oh, it's just very light and airy. Not to say that, modern teen movies aren't light in area, but I do think that a lot of the teen content has gotten edgier and darker yeah. in recent years. And I think that really speaks to the psyche of the contemporary American teenager. Yeah, I would agree with that. Either way, it's fucking watchable. And speaking of teens and younger people getting involved, I think that it's always important to bring up how pro-voting we are on this platform and the best way that you can exercise your vote in conjunction with Love at First Screening is the amazing poll that Chelsea posts every week on our Instagram at Love at First Screening, where she comes up with some of the most iconic, that's the word. This episode is sponsored by the word iconic. Uh, <laughs> she comes up with some of the most amazing questions that one could ask yourself. Such as... Harry Burns, fun, asshole, asshole, should have never met Sally. It sounds inappropriate to say I love a fun asshole. <laughs> but what would this podcast be, Madison, without me being very cognizant of all of the family members that listen? If you didn't say something <laughs> like, I love a fun asshole. I'm so sorry, Aaron. I'm so sorry. I'm just going to start apologizing to a different family member of yours every week. Great. Great. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, you can catch us on Instagram at Love at First Screening. You can also send us recommendations for movies we should watch, your thoughts, feelings, whatever you want to send us. If you are a sponsor and you want to sponsor us, just hit us up. Love at First Screening at gmail.com. Was that seductive enough? Yeah. I thought it was good. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I've been practicing in the mirror. Before you tell us what we're going to watch next week, I do want to say that I don't usually do a lot of research or background on these films or look into the creators because I'm coming to these films for the first time and I'm trying to keep my experience 
mostly as a consumer or as an audience member and not have any other context. However, after I watched this movie, I did look up the creator because I clocked that this was both written and directed by a woman in 1995. And that was very exciting. And I found out that she and Alicia Silverstone did team up again in 2012, along with Kristen Ritter and Sigourney Weaver to make a little vampire comedy movie called Vamps that I have never seen. But I watched the trailer and I feel like we need to watch this movie at some point in the future. I don't know if anyone listening has seen this movie, but I watched the trailer today and I am intrigued. That sounds incredible. And I smell an excellent uh, bonus episode in our future. That's so exciting. Oh my gosh. Well, Chelsea, unfortunately, we're not watching Vamps next time. Darn. Because I'm just learning about it now. No, it's okay. I mean, I'll get over it. Or I might not. I might not get over it. And I'll hold this grudge. And you won't know until it comes out in an altercation years down the line. And I'm like, you didn't tell me about Vamps. You'll be like, I didn't even know. And it's the whole Langston Hughes festering in the sun. But next time around... (laughs) We are actually going to watch the earliest created and produced movie that we've watched so far on the pod. We're going back to the 1950s, which not a lot of people should want to do in like a time travel way. Or just in a regressive political atmosphere way. Let's not go back to the 1950s. You know what I mean? Looking at you, Tucker Carlson, trying to be mad that you can't fuck M&Ms anymore. But uh, we're going to watch Roman Holiday features some incredible classic actors, including iconic Audrey Hepburn, played across from Gregory Peck. There's going to be some potential contention as to whether or not it's a rom-com. We'll see. Prepare yourself for that. Have a nice glass of wine while watching this. I think this is a good wine movie. If that turns out not to be a rom-com, Madison, will we have watched a rom-com three episodes into the new season oh my god I because know. didn't we determine that the wedding date was not a rom-com we did and this was not a rom-com it's not a rom-com and you're saying it's hotly contested that roman holiday is a rom-com to begin with so this is wow honestly i love it season two and we're not even watching rom-coms we're just watching shitty or iconic 90s movies that are super quotable instead of romantic comedies look you said that you don't like romantic comedies (laughs) i'm giving you an out (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right well that's all i have for you today chelsea we once again didn't watch a rom-com on our rom-com podcast i love it i'm thrilled I'm so glad. I really wish that The Wedding Date had been better as it is not a rom-com. I hated that movie. But, you know, what are you going to do? Well, as Hobby Lobby says, live, laugh, love. I really don't want you to bring up Hobby Lobby on our podcast. I can talk about how they've stolen billions of dollars of artifacts and archaeological finds from foreign countries because they claim that they're biblical. Or I can talk about how they don't provide healthcare to their workers and are openly homophobic. Great. This is a PSA. Don't shop at Hobby Lobby. Their deals aren't good enough for you to shop there and allow them to continue their horrible practices. Well, thank you for joining us. Now that you're clued in about this classic 
iconic 90s flick. I just want to remind you that we are Love at First Screening. We're here every Wednesday talking about all the movies you love, love to hate, and everything in between. So until next time. <laughs>